Hi, and welcome to episode 11 of Up and Away, the Australian Aviation Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Frangu. On this week's show, we have aviation author and writer Kathy Mexted. Kathy has written a great new book called Australian Women Pilots, which will be released on the 1st of November. On this episode, we have a chat about how she got into flying and aviation writing and what inspired her to write the book. I've read it and it's a fun and exciting book and I encourage you all to pre-order a copy from your local bookstore or online through Booktopia. I'm excited to announce I'll also be hosting the online book launch, which will take place on Zoom the night of the 1st of November. We'll hopefully have some of the pilots from the book at the event and we'll make sure that there's plenty of time to do a Q&A. There's a link to the event in the episode notes as well as on our Facebook page and website. But for now, fasten your seatbelt and let's go. Hi, Kathy. Welcome to Up and Away. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks for coming on. So I always start with this question. When did your aviation journey start and what inspired you to get into aviation? <laughs> when does the journey start? I think it's when you first become aware of aeroplanes, isn't it? So for yeah. me, it was probably when I was about six or seven, I can remember a light plane flying over high in the sky and I was standing out in the backyard calling out to it like a six-year-old does. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was a fairly fruitless exercise, but I clearly remember it and being uh, impressed by this thing. Um, And then when I was about 10, my dad learned to fly and so aviation became part of our family. Awesome. And uh, did that sort of inspire you to sort of start pursuing a sort of journey into aviation and perhaps maybe getting a pilot's license? Um, I was always happy flying with Dad. I was never bothered by it. And when I was about 16, he handed me the controls and said, you can, you're welcome to have a go. And so yeah, wow. he suggested at that point that he um, thought that I could was quite capable of learning to fly. And I didn't take that up till I was about 27. So it was not something new, but um, it's something that you have to come to yourself, isn't it? Mm something you've got to take up yourself sometimes it's in the family and sort of inspires you to do it and sometimes it's not at all and somehow you get that inspiration to do it but it's always up to you to sort of take the reins yeah yeah um people come from all over the place with all all the years i've been interviewing pilots um it's never the same answer of where did you get inspired from or what made you want to do it but usually they'll say they were hanging around an airport as a kid Mm. so that exposure around the airplanes Totally. So what uh, licenses and ratings have you got? So did you, you, there was obviously a point where you're like, all right, well, I took control of the plane and this is pretty cool. I kind of want to do this. So what, what did you end up working towards? So in 91, I went off to the flying school just with the intention of going solo. I just wanted to see if I could do it. And the instructor said to me, if you go solo, you may as well get your license because you'll have done the hard part by then. So I did go solo and that was the hard part. So I got my restricted and restricted licence and then later on I flew the Piper Cub and the Bonanza so I had to get tailwheel and retractable endorsements. That's pretty cool. Did you ever want to get anything else on top of that or is there something that you've always wanted to get but you haven't gotten yet? No, I'm happy to be a fair weather flyer. I just like flying on nice fine days. (laughs) I don't want to the clouds. I've got no desire to do any of that. I know it's cool to say I want to, yeah, no, I'm happy just to go for a Sunday fly. 
the, the true uh, private pilot journey, I think, you know. <laughs> let's not get into anything that's too too edgy. Let's let's just enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe if I did more flying, I would probably add to the endorsements, but um, I'm not doing a lot of flying at the moment. So, yeah, I just never got there. I think I had babies too soon. All <laughs> <laughs> right. So if you had to get another one, what would you probably go to now? If with unlimited funds and I could spend it on anything in aviation, yeah, uh, I'd probably go and get a helicopter license. That'd be pretty cool. That's what I wanted to do when I was a teenager, was to fly helicopters. And I'd forgotten about it until I was um, learning to fly. And my best friend's sister said, oh, are you flying choppers? And I said, no, why would you think that? And she said, because you didn't shut up about it when you are at high school. You just always <laughs> fly helicopters. <laughs> but from Finland. It was a long way from anywhere to find a helicopter in the 70s in Finland. And I realised that came from watching Skippy and um, they had a guy in Skippy who had a helicopter. Yeah, wow. And I always thought that was pretty, pretty exciting way to get around. <laughs> so as opposed to most people that get into flying based on Top Gun, yours was Skippy and wanting to get into helicopters. Well, it just shows you um, what influence something like that can have on your thinking. Mm. On your, you know, what things uh, spark your interest and stay with you. So if flying was going to spark my interest, then that was the only place it came from, was either dad or from the telly. And Skippy was it for me when I was six or eight or ten (laughs) in a country town with two channels. So did you ever want to pursue flying as a career? Um. When I was doing my unrestricted license, the instructor said to me, are you going to go on and do commercial path? And I said, oh, I don't know, How does, what happens there? You know, who's going to give me a job? And he said, oh, someone will give you a job. And I just thought it sounded like a lot of money with a very vague ending. And I think I just didn't understand the system. And um, I said to him, would I be, I don't think I'm smart enough to do that. And he said, yeah, yeah, you're capable of doing it, but you just got to want to do it. And um but it just, I think I probably didn't have strong enough instruction on how it worked and or understanding. Um, and then I got married as soon, sort of a year after I finished my unrestricted. And we did discuss it then, whether I'd go and do a commercial license, but we quickly had a baby and everything changes then when you got, and Dennis was flying internationally. So um, it just all got too hard. So a couple of times I've, thought about it and something has popped up so I never got around to it (laughs) but I don't regret it priorities do shift over time and you know yeah things change yeah so I guess instead of uh, pursuing a career as a pilot you sort of got into writing as a bit of a career path how how did you get into that ah well as a teenager I was a prolific letter writer and um, that pretty much continued all my life because I think I just love telling stories and getting news back. Um, but email, as we know, killed all that. <laughs> Nobody writes letters. <laughs> but um, when I was in my early to mid-40s and had the last baby, I was at home unable really to go back to work. And so I thought this is actually a really good time to start writing because I can do it from home and I can fit it in around Um, our lifestyle so I went to uni and did a diploma of professional writing and editing one night a week for about five years and at the same time I started pitching to magazines and 
Um, my husband suggested I pitch to AOPA magazine, but I felt very nervous writing aviation because I felt that I didn't know enough to be able to write about it. But a girlfriend said to me, you just need to know who to ask to get the answers and that's how you, you know, you don't need to be the expert, you just need to be the person who can convey the information. Yeah, totally. So I went to the, um, Tokum, up to Tokemal to the National Aerobatic Championships in about 2010, I think it was, and did a story and photos from there and after that I just kept writing for Australian, fly, uh, Australian Pilot which is the AOPA magazine and then a few other aviation magazines. And then five years ago, I became editor of Airsport, which is the magazine of the Sport Aircraft Association of Australia. And they're the guys who build aeroplanes and design their own. And they've got some pretty cool toys. Yeah. So I really enjoy that job. That's pretty cool. That seems like a, a whole industry and part of aviation that's uh pretty wild uh, having to build your own aeroplanes and doing all that kind of stuff yeah i hadn't heard of them until well i had heard of them apparently we were members i didn't realize that at the time but uh having got to know the people involved and collecting stories every few months for the magazine you come across some pretty interesting characters and interesting ideas and it's that idea of um designing and building something yourself that I love. I've met some guys who've taken a design that's already in existence and then they'll stretch it or change the wing or, you know, flip it about a bit and then they'll build a model of it and see if that flies and then they'll do a full-scale aeroplane. It's kind of like dressmaking where you make the bridal dress, the wedding dress in calico to start with. (laughs) And oh, then, yeah. <laughs> then you build the real thing out of silk. Yeah, wow. So do people make uh, designs from scratch um, or is it more modifications of existing designs? Um, somebody designed the airplane from scratch back in about 1910 or something, didn't they? But um, oh, yeah. everything's a variation on that. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, some of them make their own. Um, John Corby's a good one. He's an Australian who designed the Corby Starlet. And that's been around since the 60s. Um, and that's a little single seat sport aerobatic aeroplane. Um, yeah, mm. there's a few of that. It's pretty cool. A lot of one off people in their garage just drawing it up and then they get their mates over and think, oh, what, what are we going to do with this one? <laughs> How are we going to make that work? <laughs> um, totally. I've only interviewed a couple of women or a few women in the five years who have been involved in building. There's probably about half a dozen all up that I know of. Do you think more people, more women are getting into it? Usually when their husbands are into it and so they will take it on as a project. But, you know, you can build an aeroplane in, I think the fastest one I heard of was nine months. The slowest one was 18 years. Wow. (laughs) That's pretty long. Ah, life gets in the way. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So I guess we'll get into your book soon, but. Up until your book, um, which uh, up until maybe your book, what has been your favorite piece of writing so far? Um, I think that changes over time because in the beginning you're very proud of your clever words and then you look back later and realize that maybe they weren't as clever as you thought at the time. Um, And sometimes you become immune to what you've written and people read it with fresh eyes and 
and value it more than what you do. But I really enjoyed when I first started writing, um, contributing to the local community newsletter. Every month I'd set myself the task of writing 300 words, just really as a discipline to see if I could tell a story in 300 words. And so I just wrote about um, setting up a farm, living in the country, raising young children, anything that was on my mind at the time that was relevant to the people who were reading it, which was the local community. At one point I wrote a story called Ride on Mowers and it was 300 words and explains why mothers need to get out of the house and on the mower and it's because it's the only legitimate time that they can um, get out of the house and leave everybody behind. And I was at a <laughs> party. Yeah, I know. It's freedom, a noisy freedom, but um, it's a great contemplative. Freedom nonetheless. Yeah, contemplative space. And I was at a dinner party and I met this girl and she said, hmm, did you write that thing about ride on mowers? And I said, yeah, I did. And I said, but that was like nine months ago. And she said, yeah, I've got it pinned on my fridge because I just loved it. And I thought, yeah, actually, I love that story too. <laughs> um, another one I did because in the winter where you've got um, a combustion stove and so you're always shoving wood into the combustion stove and you only have to get a bit of wood that is half an inch too long and it's useless to you. And so I wrote a piece called All Hail the Woodman because we rely on him Usually the day before it snows, people will ring him and go, can I have another load of wood? And if he gives it to you too long or too wide or too crooked or something, you know, it just completely ruins everything. And <laughs> a local lady gave it to her son who was a woodman and she said, oh, I thought you might enjoy this. And he read it and he laughed out loud and then he said, oh, hang on, I'm their woodman. <laughs> so went round in a circle. That's funny. Um, probably one of the favourite stories would be the one I wrote for AOPA about flying around the Bahamas in a light plane and that was because I had to go to the Bahamas and fly around in a light plane to do it. So that was probably one of the best holidays. Well, that sounds had. very good. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's a favourite story. Anything I've written for Outback magazine I've loved because I just love um, just getting out and meeting people really and all the flying stories are great, especially photographing aviation. I've really enjoyed the photography side of it. Have you done any in-flight sort of plane-to-plane photography or anything crazy like that where you're sort of getting close and taking photos of other planes and stuff in the air? Air-to-air photography. I did um, a great photo of uh, David Pilkington in his pits and that was really good fun because I was also in a pits. Oh, wow. And we were around side by side and mucking around, but it was stinking hot. And um, it was actually that first story I did for AOPA at the Aerobatic Championships in Toke. So I enjoyed that. And there's another one that got published well was an Outback magazine photo of Cole Griffin, who was 91 at the time and still flying. He'd been a World War II pilot. And so we were in the Cub and he was in, him and Warren Canning were in their RV. And um, I had a friend here as a photographer and I said, all right, you got any advice before I go off and do this? And he said, 
charge your batteries and take a spare pair of batteries. Yeah, take a spare set of batteries. And I kind of rolled my eyes and thought, my batteries are charged, you know, the card's clean, I'm good to go. And so I thought, I'd better do that. And I put the batteries in my top pocket. And so the aeroplane was, well, they were getting lined up. And I thought, right, I'll just check my settings and lifted up the camera and the batteries had dropped out the bottom and were rolling around the bottom of the aeroplane. Oh which is dangerous enough in itself in a cub. And um, I had no batteries. And so thank God I had the spare batteries in my pocket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so always take spare batteries. A lesson learned. It's the cardinal sin for photographers is to flat batteries. I guess getting into your book, uh, which is pretty exciting, tell us about Australian women pilots besides perhaps the fairly self-explanatory title. Uh, tell us what it is and what it's about. The book is about 10 Australian women who are pilots and I. each of them has a challenge and so they read like a classic story where there's a beginning, um, some sort of crisis or event or challenge in the middle and then a resolution at the end. So I didn't want to just profile women pilots for the sake of it and I didn't necessarily ch chase stories that were uh, the person who did the first thing or the went the highest or flew the fastest or whatever. Um, I had to consider geography, so I tried to get a spread of stories around Australia. I had to get a spread of um areas of the industry in aviation so I didn't want to do 10 airline pilots for sake you know for the sake of that um so there's an ag pilot there's a flying doctor's pilot someone who flew on a cattle station yeah all different areas of aviation so it's across a spread of experiences opportunities um attitudes timelines yeah that's that's what the book's about 10 good stories so when was the moment you realised you wanted to write the book? It was a bit of a slow realisation because when I started writing as a writer 10 or 15 years ago, I wrote a piece about being married to a pilot actually <laughs> because I was having a bad day and I was in bed with the flu and I thought, how did I get to be the person who stays home sick with three kids? So that story struck a chord with some of my pilot's wife's friends like friends who were married to pilots. And a few of them came back and said, oh, you should write a book. And that's where it started. And you've got to be careful what you say to people, Chris, because <laughs> the idea gets lodged in their brain. And um, I started putting together stories from other pilots' wives and I sent it to a publisher and they said, actually, your voice is very strong and so you should write a memoir. So I wrote a memoir and uh, I, someone else who critiqued the memoir said, actually, you should write about a certain aspect of your life. So I wrote that book and then someone read that and put me in touch with a publisher, a big publisher. And so I worked for nine months on Pilot's Wives. So I explored historical Pilot's Wives. Um, so the Prime Minister was married, um, John Gordon was married, Sorry, I focused on Bettina Gordon, who was married to John, the Prime Minister, who flew in World War II. But I'm actually telling the story of her life. So it's like the women behind the men, um, and each of them has their own 
thing going on. Um, it got rejected not because of the book but because of um, what was happening in the industry at that time and that publisher not wanting to take on any new writers. So um, people often, when I was talking about Pilot's Wives, people would often say, oh, such and such would be a good story. And I'd say, yeah, no, she's a woman pilot. I'm actually after the wives. <laughs> so in the end I thought, why don't I write about the women pilots because that's what everyone keeps coming back to. So I did that hmm. and it's been great. It's been great finding these women and diving into their lives and telling these remarkable stories. Yeah, I, th I think it's a great premise and I think it's crazy that something like this hasn't been written before. Why do you think it's so overdue? Um, maybe it hasn't been done in the form that I've done it and maybe it's mm. my magazine writing background that has me wanting to tell a story in 800 or 1,000 words. Uh, and trying to make that story interesting. So um, a historian might write a different type of book. Um, the books that I've come across on Australian women pilots have either been written and self-published by other women pilots and they've done a good job of tracking them down and profiling them, but they've all been quite short pieces and I was more interested in telling a longer more in-depth story. There's a lady called Elva Rush who's well in her 80s now and she flew in her Cessna 152 around Australia and she stopped and talked to every woman pilot she could find through the Women Pilots Association and she got their story and she put them all in a book so it was like a compilation of every woman pilot in Australia in I think it was in the 80s she did that. Mm, cool. So that was a good starting point just to see who was who and who was around and, um, you know, for the, the older ones. And she was very encouraging when I started this book. Uh, sometimes I'd ring her and tear my hair out and she'd say, keep going, Kathy, keep going. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> thank Elva very much for doing that. But, no, mostly if people are writing collections of aviation stories, it's about Kingsford Smith or it's about um, – what the men were up to because mostly it's men who have been flying and they're the ones that had the big adventures. Women tend to be more cautious so you don't hear about a woman um, except Gabby Kennard <laughs> who flew around the world solo. You generally don't find women taking off into the night um, hoping to claim a trophy, you know. Totally. We should um, actually maybe touch on who you've profiled. Did you want to run through the list of uh, who's in the book? Yes. Uh, so I started with Nancy Bird because she is so well-known in Australia. She's one of the few women pilots that most people or many people know the name. They're never quite sure what she did. But uh, she was a great one to include because she's so well-known. And Sydney's third airport is going to be named after her. It's pretty cool. So I think people should know yeah, what she did. Um, she was the first Australian woman to use her commercial licence. She was number 11 to get one, but none of the others ever actually flew for money. But Nancy set up a small business and um, just her in an aeroplane and she went out New South Wales and worked. Marty Gething flew in World War II. She was with the Air Transport Auxiliary and she flew, delivered aeroplanes from the factories to the airfields where the squadrons would take them off into battle in World War II. And she flew some pretty cool planes too. 
Yeah, you've read it, haven't you? Yeah. Read them all, and her logbook lists. That's a very extensive list. It's almost like a who's who of um, World War Two fighters. Totally, yeah. Patricia Toole in 1952 went to New Guinea as the first female pilot in New Guinea, and she has a wonderful adventure. Well, many adventures, but there's um, a bit of a nail-biting story about her forced landing on a river in the jungle and she's out there for 40 hours before she gets rescued. Um, but I'll leave you to leave the listeners to read that story because I don't want to spoil anything. That's a great one. The gun and the rum. Um, Gabby Kennard, she flew around the world solo in a single-engine aeroplane in 1989. Uh, she was in a Saratoga and her story is just nail-biting almost the whole way around. It's an amazing feat and she was going for 33 days, so she left the kids with somebody who cared about them, somebody to care for them. She drew back on her mortgage and bought the aeroplane, had it fitted out and off she went by herself just with one engine up the front. She landed on a secret military base island in the middle of the Pacific unannounced because she um, was running low. She got caught by headwinds and she had to refuel. She had uh, fuel starvation over the Pacific at night. She uh, flew through South America and her communications failed. She had thunderstorm over the Atlantic. It just went on. She had a snake in the plane when she got back to Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed at that part. I thought that was great. <laughs> oh, I don't think she did. Yeah. Um, who's after Gabby? Marion McCall. She didn't learn until she was about in middle-aged. She was married to a bishop. Her husband was the Bishop of Wallachra, which is 90% of South Australia, and he was driving all over the state. And so when her kids left home, she got her licence and she flew him and it cut down the travel time enormously and it was something they could do together. She went in the Dawn to Dusk, which is run by the Royal Air Force. Oh, it was presented at the Royal Air Force Club in London and Prince Philip is the sponsor. And she won it the first time and then the next time Prince Philip said to the organiser, get that Australian girl to defend her title. So Marion um, went off and did that. She won the Dawn to Dusk three times. So hers is a good story, mainly because I think oh, she's so unassuming and so unlike somebody you would expect to hop in a plane and fly off, you know, on this challenge. Um Deborah Laurie or Deborah Wardley, everybody knows, all, all the women pilots know her because she took Reg Ansett to court in the 70s and she was the first female to fly for a major commercial airline in Australia. There was another lady, Christine, who flew in Alice Springs for a smaller airline prior to that, but Deborah took on the big boys and she won and went to the high court. And she has had a very successful flying career, 40, 45 years she's been flying for the airlines. So hers is a very good story. And on episode six of Up and Away. Yes, you've interviewed her, haven't you? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So she's in the book. Um, the cover girl is Georgia Maxwell. She's on the cover with Nancy Bird and Marty Gething. And she's an ag pilot and Georgia flew ag for about 14 or 15 years and ended up doing firebombing as well. She was the first female fixed-wing firebomber pilot in Australia. 
And hers is really a great story of perseverance, you know, setting your sights and just sticking with it. And I think my favourite part in her story was when she went to do her ag rating, finally after waiting years, um, years of working for the company and, you know, driving trucks and flying photographers around and just doing all the sort of apprentice-type jobs. And then the day came when she was able to do her ag rating and just that story of her uh, learning the procedures and handling the machine and trying to get her boss to be impressed enough to pass her. <laughs> um, it's a pretty <laughs> story, very strong story, George's. Then there's Nicole Forrester. Nicole was from is from Brisbane and she was Action Girl. She was um, a girl who was always either in lycra or leather and she rode a motorbike. She was She would... On her resume, she had hang gliding, scuba diving. Um, you know, she just did everything, anything that required a, uh, produced adrenaline. And when she got her license, she wanted to go bush and get some uh, really good solid skills by flying out on a cattle station. So the thing that I focused on with her story was just her culture shock at getting out to the cattle station and not really being prepared for what that involved. It was nothing terrible, but it was just so different. Mm. I was really trying to focus on how um, just it's a world away, even though it's part of our own country. Um, and so Nicole ended up in the RAAF, but um, most of it is focused on her out in the outback and what that means for a city girl. Because often people like to tell the story about the city girl who goes country and falls in love with it and never comes back. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Nicole, she didn't fall in love with it, but she made some great friends and she happily went back and flew for another couple of years out in the Territory after she'd kind of gone back to Brisbane and collected herself again and <laughs> went back and had another crack at it. So, um, yeah, she's a really relaxed character, Nicole, and very funny to hear her speak. And she's just sent me a text message. That's hilarious. Uh-huh. And the text is a photo of her book. She's got it. So excited to read it. It looks amazing. Uh, um, and the final story is Esther Velstra. And Esther's another one who just, I thought I was writing about the Flying Doctors, but when I sat down with her to get her story, because I didn't know her or anything about her, um, it was her GA experience that really got me. It, you know, that she was Dutch, she was living in Australia, she drove her little car from Sydney to Dubbo, knocking on hangers all the way, couldn't get a job, kept going to through South Australia, up to Alice Springs, couldn't, still couldn't get a job, and she ended up in Darwin at the youth hostel in the main street. And so I started the story with her taking off her necklace and her gold watch, and she slides them across the counter as security against her bed for the night. So um, she handed them over and said, when I get some work, I'll come back and pay for my accommodation. Uh, But until then, this is all I've got. (laughs) She had $7 to her name. Yeah, so she ended up flying in the Northern Territory quite a bit. She had some very dramatic episodes, crash landings, and um, she almost gave up once or twice, but she persisted. There was an engineer who contacted her and gave her encouragement, 
Um, and that's what got her back in the plane. And she ended up getting her dream job, which was with the RFDS. And um, she was there for 16 years, I think. So that's the 10 women. Hmm. Pretty cool. All amazing and diverse stories, which uh, brings me to the question. There have been so many amazing women aviators in this country spanning the past century. How could you possibly have decided who to include in the book? And that being said, have you got some that you'd like to cover or are thinking of wanting to cover in a potential part two? (laughs) Chris, you're giving me more work. I've only just finished this one. (laughs) (laughs) It's not even out yet. (laughs) I don't know what part, whether there'd be a part two. I'd have to talk to a publisher uh, and maybe discuss with them what they reckon. There's, you know, there's a lot of women pilots in Australia. Let me, I think at the end of my um, introduction, it says, I got the figures off CASA because I'm always interested to know. Mm. Uh, There are 31,696 Australian pilots, of which 1,957 are women. So I've got 1,946 to choose from if I take myself out. So that's a couple more books. Yeah. So um, I don't know, just part two, doing the same thing again may not always work. I'm interested in Pilot's Wives. That was the first book that I was going to write. Um, mm. There's so many other areas of aviation. I mean, I could just pick more more stories from different areas of aviation, just pick a different angle. So the answer is I don't have an answer to that. Yeah. That's fair enough. I'm open to offers and ideas. Yeah, everyone can send in their suggestions now, and then oh yeah, great. Go from there. Love suggestions. (laughs) How did you go about researching these stories? Um, What kind of challenges did you face when researching each person? I imagine the some of the older stories would have been more archival stuff and maybe newspaper things. Or how did you go about it? Uh, The first story I did was Pat Tool, and she passed away only two weeks after I met her. But she had written her story down and so her family were able to give me her notes and she'd written like, I don't know, 20 or 30 typed pages of her story. So I had that. I'd heard her speak. One of her speeches was on on YouTube, thanks to the Coffs Harbour Aero Club for doing that. There's Trove is a great um, resource to look up old newspaper articles uh, there was family and friends and other people who had been in New Guinea, other pilots from up in New Guinea. There's just so many. You just go wherever you can find the information. Um, and, yeah, so you just gather what you can find first and then speak to the people close to the subject if the subject's not alive um, and then research the rest. That's all. And and the story is all about research and interpretation. So it's my interpretation of the story. You know, I can't hand on heart say this is exactly what happened. It's just mm. as it's told to me and as I imagine or know that, assume that that's how things would have played out. So especially with the with Pats because um, I've never been to New Guinea and so I had to rely on the descriptions, Google Maps. I spent, I went blind on google maps um yeah and i've got a brother who lives in new guinea and i also at the end found a female pilot who flew in new guinea in the 80s and she was great help because 
pulled out her whack charts and she said, oh, yeah, this is where the Torricelli Mountains are. Yes, you're correct in that. And here's the Kiang River. And then it was, is it spelt with an I or an E? And, you know, it, <laughs> it goes on forever. <laughs> you just got to stop and say, okay, I think we're finished. That's <laughs> enough. Yeah, moving on. Yeah, it's funny that line that's always hard, hey? Yeah, yeah. So, um, but the seven people who were alive, I just went to them and spoke to them and their friends and then chased up facts and found extra bits of information to kind of support and pad out their stories. Lynn Gray's story, because it involves a ditching in the Pacific, she I spoke to her and her co-pilot and Ray Clambeck, who was in the other aeroplane, and his co-pilot and... Um, uh, Lynn's husband and other people who are, uh, yeah, people who have done that crossing who could give me feedback on what it was like, you know, what, what happens in a ferry crossing. Yeah, so by having all those people still alive, I was able to give a much more rounded, um, it became like a film script almost because different people, Lynn would say, oh, I was really calm. Someone else said, oh, she was pretty nervous. Someone else said, <laughs> oh, we were all flat, you know. <laughs> And so you have to kind of um, find the middle ground for all that and tell it so that it's true to everybody, everybody's experience, but especially to Lynn's experience because she's the main character. Sounds like a lot of fun though, having to dive into all that stuff. Uh, recreating Lynn's ditching was um, exciting for me because I had so many different aspects to bring into it and different opinions. And so I really enjoyed trying to figure out what everyone was thinking, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> piece it together, give it the drama that it deserved. So what surprised you most when you're writing the book? Um, I would say it was how many people told me it was about time someone wrote a book like this. Yeah. <laughs> I was really surprised how many people have been waiting a long time for a book like this. And you're like, and no one's done it except me. It's been up to me this entire time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they should have told me earlier. It would have saved me a lot of writing in the beginning. Yeah. Do you have any um, funny stories to share about writing the book? Um, th yeah, there's like there's nothing in the pub hilarious, but <laughs> there was moments that really caught me. You know, each story has a piece in it where I, I just said, oh, wow. Um, with Lynn, it was a phone interview and I was recording it on a recording device so that I could remember um, exactly what was said and what the inflection was, you know, in her stories. Mm. And when she told me the story about cactus, which is when the airliner said, um, this is cactus 456 or something, we're with you now. And she said, cactus, Jesus, mate, we're the ones that are cactus. And <laughs> I, laughed, I laughed so hard. I said, what did you just say? And um because the Americans had these nicknames for themselves and they didn't understand the Australian slang for cactus, they had no idea what she was talking about. And so when I wrote that, I thought I have to really reiterate what I've just written. And so I said Lynn's reply was rather laconic given the, um, given the gravity of their cactusness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, that one really, really grabbed me. Yeah, I thought that was a great part. That was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Another uh, special moment would be Deb Laurie. I was very nervous about approaching her because she's such a legend, you know, and I just thought 
will she want to talk to another journalist? She's had to put up with the media since she was 24. Um, and she didn't know who I was and I was very nervous about approaching her. But I met her in um, a hotel in Tullamarine where she was staying and we walked up the hall towards each other and she just had this glint in her eyes and it was a, a beautiful thing. <laughs> and um, so we very quickly um, got to get, got our heads together and I think she enjoyed telling her story and when I gave her what I'd written so far and met her the next time, she was clutching it to her chest and she said, I don't want to give it back. <laughs> she loved it so much. So that was really encouraging. Yeah, it's really nice. Probably the scene Esther in Darwin when she had no money and she slid the jewellery across the counter at the youth hostel. I just immediately thought that's the start of a film, you know, this girl, this young blonde girl with a banged up old car out the front sliding her mother's jewellery across the counter. And uh, like she took the necklace off her neck and took the watch off her wrist and slid them across. Um, yeah, I thought that was very uh, visual. I think quite a few of these seem like they could really turn into films like individually. There's some yeah. amazing stories. Sometimes people tell you a story and you just see it being acted out. Mm. There's some of Nicole's I was a bit fearful for the fact that her career is so new and I didn't want to write something that could come back to haunt her or me. But there was a very funny story that I took out just before publication. Nicole was a non-drinker and she was sitting in the pub drinking iced water on a weekend away and all her friends were um, dancing on the pool table in their underwear and she thought this was quite a spectacle. <laughs> and I wrote about um, the spectacle of alcoholic indulgence unfolding around her. I rather liked that line, but I just felt that uh, perhaps that was better left out of the story. <laughs> In personal story, I loved writing the marriage proposal where Cole proposes because she told me that story. And, you know, as I mm. said, she passed away two weeks later. And he goes across to the, when she says no, and he goes across to the hotel, the hospital to see his old girlfriend and she got so jealous and she said, I got so bloody jealous, I thought I'd better marry the bastard. And she threw her head back <laughs> and we laughed and laughed. Yeah, so that was a good one. Um, Marion McCall imitating the Queen <laughs> or Prince Philip. She said, I'm doing an imitation. I said, well, it's hard not to mimic someone's accent when you're recalling them. Um and probably I enjoyed writing the part in Georgia's story where she was doing her ag rating and I wrote um, her boss was averse to women swearing so he wasn't sure which way to look as Georgia ground out some choice words through gritted teeth. <laughs> Miss Wall, which was her name, Miss Wall wasn't running for Miss World. She was here to be an ag pilot. <laughs> so, um, yeah, she dropped the glamour for that moment. Mm. So, yeah, each story had its had its parts that I loved and you'll love them too well you love them I did I loved I loved all of them I thought they were great which it leads me to my second question do you have a favorite story or a favorite part of the story uh favorite story I couldn't do that that would be like choosing a favorite child I actually want all the women to come and live with me so we can drink tea and gossip (laughs) (laughs) I love them all um, there was never one that I thought, gee, I wish I hadn't, I've done the wrong thing by including them. Um, but I did actually consider them very carefully 
before I went ahead with the stories in that there had to be enough of the story to fill 7,000 words. So um, mm. I did hear another story from a lady in uh, in WA. She was telling me how her f- first flight up to, um, she was heading up to the Yukon in Alaska in Canada and the engine failed on this aeroplane and she had to do a forced landing onto an ice-covered remote um, Yukon backwater and she just rolled up and pulled up at the police station and I said what well, where'd you come from and she said I just dropped out of the sky <laughs> she, she wasn't happy it's a great story but um there kind of wasn't enough to it would be a good story yeah for another mm. I'd like to remember that one but I just felt that it didn't really um have enough around it yeah and there's some sensitivities uh, with certain people where it's difficult to tell their story without diving into something that they'd rather not share and then it becomes mm. crazy. But um, I have remembered that story about her rolling up to the police station in the aeroplane. There you go, part two. <laughs> Probably my favourite <laughs> line in the book would be the cactus line and also mm. when Pat Tool gets rescued and Jock McGregor appears under a swinging hurricane lantern, and she says, Jock, would you like a rum? And um, I really <laughs> love that part of that story. Yeah. Um, Gabby Kennard, just her whole flight, trying to get my head around what it would be like to be up there on your own, on the other side of the world, um, just on your own for that long, in the aeroplane for that long, with not always with someone to talk to. And... Um, so I kind of did a bit of reimagining for that one. Um, and Deborah Laurie, the bit about hers that uh, when I was in Melbourne one time, I went to the Supreme Court because I thought this girl was 24 and she was hauled up in front of the Supreme Court to justify herself to be able to get a um, to get a job, just to get, an, you know, I mean, just. At that point, they didn't employ women pilots. And so she had to go in and bat for herself. And so I went to the Supreme Court and walked up the steps as she would have had to do. And um, it's a very sobering experience. And I wrote in that in her story, the steps had worn but not softened over 100 years. And um, I think that was her reception generally, you know. Mm, she had her supporters but she certainly had a and it was a hell of a fight. So when's the book out and where can everyone get a copy? Yeah, so the book's coming out. It's published by New South Publishers, New South Books, and it's on the 1st of November, which is a Sunday. You can get it from your local bookshop, Big W. Um, You can email me for a signed copy, 10pilots at gmail.com. You can download it through all the usual places. And you can pre-order on Booktopia. But it's good to support the local bookshops because if you go and buy it from the bookshop, then they'll have to order another one. <laughs> totally, yeah. <laughs> and they'd be having a bit of a hard time at the moment too. So Yeah. What I've found is, um, is that many of the people who've contacted me to get signed copy, that copies are either women pilots or they're women buying it for their father. And I think, no, you should be buying it for your daughter. <laughs> so I'm hoping all the women who buy it for their father 
then get the father to read it to the granddaughter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I think when I was writing it, I had my um I had my sixteen year old self in mind when I was writing it. Yeah, I think it would be super encouraging for a lot of uh, young women pilots and people who want to pursue it and particularly go down through, you know, down routes that are, you know, not just airlines, but, you know, all sorts of fun adventure sort of style flying and stuff. I think it'd be really inspiring. Yeah. So we get to the point of the podcast where I ask these questions, which I really like asking people. Uh, what's been your most memorable flight so far? It's funny, this turned into a two-parter because Deborah Laurie was actually like, hang on, is this memorable in terms of like fun or scenic or is this memorable in terms of like nail-biting and scary? I was like, all right, give us both. And she had so many nail-biting and scary stories. Uh, (laughs) She's like, I've got a top 10. And I was like, I really want to do like just a Deborah Laurie top 10 scary like flying experiences. So we might get her back on just to talk about those. But yeah, do you have anything like that? Um. The beautiful moments flying was um, in the Bonanza when I was flying down around Malakuta and we did a big wheelie around the Malakuta lighthouse and it was just a real wee sort of moment. <laughs> we did the same at Byron Bay, just woo around the lighthouse. Flying in the Bahamas was every day. It was beautiful there. Mm. Um, we and Wilpena Pound, flying around Wilpena Pound in South Australia. I took a, um, my friend and I both up the front, flew the Bonanza over there, and then um, I had a couple of non-flying people in the back, girls in the back. And, yeah, that was, that was great as well. The downers, would, the memorable would be the day that I got in the Piper Cup to do my initial endorsement, and the throttle got jammed on my first departure. And we had to, we had partial power, but we were losing height. And I could see the point of impact in the bush outside Bendigo. And the instructor in the back took over and he would turn and bank, turn and bank, straighten up. And I thought, yep, we can see the runway, but we can't make it because he can't stretch the glide. And um, so I'm hanging onto the struts in the front thinking, I just don't feel like this is the day it's all going to go wrong for me, but I can't see how we're not going to end up in those trees. And then we were about maybe 100 feet, maybe 50 feet above the, I don't know, we were close to the trees and we just got this thermal that lifted us up and put us right down exactly on the piano keys. (laughs) Martin Goble was the instructor and he was in the back of the cub and we got out on the piano keys. We pulled up and got out and... He looked at me and he said, what the hell just happened? And I said, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> Someone was looking after you that trip. <laughs> That's right. That's wild. Um, and the dream flight that I would take just for fun, I think I'd absolutely love to go down to Antarctica. So if you can arrange that, that'd be good. Oh. <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> I think that would be pretty cool. I'd be keen to do that too. Maybe we'll do a uh, special podcast episode where you and I go to Antarctica and check it out. Or we could do a raffle, sell off the price. That's true, yeah. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show and um, you know, talking about your book. It's an amazing book. Uh, I've read it and it is great and it's very enjoyable and I reckon everyone should go out and get a copy from uh, all the places we mentioned, your local bookstore, pre-ordering on Booktopia. I think it's great and, yeah, I kind of wanted more as well, so that's probably why I keep asking about a part two. <laughs> um. 
It has actually almost sold out three weeks before publication. They only had a couple of hundred copies. Wow. So uh, if you want it straight away, Get in you quick. can pre-order it through your bookshop. Yeah. So I don't know when the papers will reprint. So I've got a couple of amendments to make. Steve Hitchin did a review of it in Australian Flying and he rang me and he goes, there's three mistakes. And I went, oh, no, already? You know. <laughs> so just, <laughs> the F-111 is not a fighter jet, it's a bomber. New, oh, New, yeah. New Guinea was a protectorate, not a colony. That was some. That was not my mistake. Um, and what was the other one? I can't remember now. It's written down. Anyway. You'll get your first edition copies. You can all make your little notes and adjustments in them. Yeah, and email me immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, we've just decided that we're doing a book launch as well on the night, Sunday night on the 1st of November on Zoom. I'm so excited to have somebody else organize this for me because I've had to organize it. <laughs> It's not enough to write the book. You've got to make videos of yourself. You've got to talk on radios. You've got to line up newspaper interviews. Um, so that's fantastic that you've got the technical know-how to host a Zoom launch party. Let's not get ahead of ourselves yet. We'll see what technical things may arise in the process, but it should be fine. Oh, no, I've got the champagne in the fridge now. <laughs> I'm good to go. <laughs> I'm hoping we can get the women in the book to come on the Zoom launch as well. That'll be great. So we'll be in touch with them and keep an eye out for the event on uh, both Kathy's Facebook page, uh, Up and Away Facebook page. I'll put, post something on our website as well. There'll be hopefully by the time this is released, a link to the Zoom launch in the podcast episode notes as well. So have a look out for that. And yeah, and hopefully you can join us. Thanks a lot, Chris. No worries. And thanks for coming on the show. Okay, we'll see you soon. Yeah, catch you soon. I'll see you on the first. Yeah, catch you then. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to episode 11 of Up and Away. Remember to pre-order your copies of Australian Women Pilots through your local bookstore or online at Booktopia. Oh, and Kathy and I hope to see you all at the book launch party on the 1st of November. See you then.